0: Hi again, and welcome to Trapped History. I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy.
1: And I'm Oswin Baker.
0: And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes.
1: In today's episode, we're heading south, way down south, all the way to the Pole, where we will meet the most extraordinary explorer the world has ever known, Roald Amundsen.
0: Well, I've heard of Scott of the Antarctic, and I've also heard of Shackleton, but that's really because... My son has been studying explorers at school and so he knows about Shackleton. He's probably knows a lot more than I do. <laughs> so
1: that's, that's quite an interesting one. I mean, what, what what's your take on that? Do you, have you heard of, of young children being introduced to people like that? I have not heard of that and I have young children myself.
2: So perhaps this is something that they will encounter in the next few years. I will keep my ears open for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. What I have heard of is uh, in business schools there are a lot of historical case studies that are used to teach leadership and management and strategy. And Shackleton and Scott feature quite prominently. Uh, Roald Amundsen does not. So different age
1: group, but same phenomenon. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if we know anything about Roald Amundsen, it's that he's the man who beat Scott to the South Pole. and And that's part of the problem. It's Scott who we all know about. That is how Rold is defined. It's the myths, it's the symbolism of Scott's story, the trek to the pole, only to find the Norwegian flag flying there. Amundsen had got there first. Their long, hard, dispiriting trudge back, which they never finish. And, and sort of, again, in terms of sort of the, the heroic model, I'm just going outside, I may be some time. That tragedy of it all... And the problem is there's no room for Amundsen's story in that. As our guest on today's episode puts it, Roald Amundsen's journeys make for boring reading.
0: And that guest is Martin Gutman, historian, professor and business coach, whose latest book, The Unseen Leader, recasts what we think of leadership. Martin, it's really lovely to meet you. But is Roald boring? I suppose he's boring
2: compared to Shackleton and Scott. Uh, his his expeditions and his accounts of them do make for exciting reading, I would say, but certainly less so than these more heroic uh, British uh, expedition leaders. And, and part of that is because he planned his expeditions down to a T, was very meticulous, but was also able to respond to Events in the field in a way that minimized rather than uh, exacerbated the the crises that befell
1: them, and I think crisis is quite an important thing. It comes through in in, in your book, and uh, you know. And just to be clear, this is a history podcast. This isn't about business coaching, <laughs> but I'm I'm fascinated about the the storytelling aspect of it all. I mean, here on Trapped History. You know, we're about telling stories and trying to understand stories, but also it seems that that stories are really important when we're teaching people about business and teaching people about how to work in organisations. And I know, I know that Martin, that yes, you're working at a business school, but you are a trained historian. I mean, how how do the stories we tell ourselves get in the way of? Doing things better. You know,
2: humans are storytelling animals, and stories are what we use to make sense of the world around us. Both looking back towards history and looking around complex topics uh, today. Stories speak louder than than dry facts and numbers. And one of our favorite stories, and when I say "are," I really mean humanity, is the so-called hero's journey, uh, which has been recreated in essentially every. Hollywood movie yeah, that's Star Wars isn't it Star Wars Harry Potter uh, you name it all of these mm. all of these classic Hollywood pictures and a lot of classic books as well of a person who is pulled into a crisis uh, and has to work excessively hard to motivate themselves discover some truth about themselves uh, motivate the people around them there's a near-death experience uh, and of course in the end they emerge victoriously and cool. this hero's journey has has been retold for hundreds of years across cultures. We are just addicted to the story. And what I find is when a lot of, uh, let's say, contemporary leadership commentators look for inspiring examples in the past, they gravitate towards stories that match this hero's journey. I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what purpose should these stories serve so if we go back to the examples of scott and shackleton and amundsen scott and shackleton and many of these other british explorers their stories are very exciting they're really fun to read yeah that's great uh, i enjoy reading uh, about their expeditions and their own diaries etc however and this is where we have to be very clear if our objective is to learn something about how to conduct polar explorations um, in a successful and efficient way, or more broadly, if our goal, which was my goal in in this book, if our goal is to extract lessons about leadership, uh, then those are not the best stories to go to. Uh, instead, one would go to Roald
1: Amundsen or other such less popular explorers. I, I'm struck. There was another. There was another polar explorer, Viljama Stevenson. And he said he was around this same time, and uh, Roald Amundsen didn't rate him. He called him the biggest humbug in the world. But <laughs> he said, an adventure is a sign of incompetence. Yes, I would say so. Absolutely. That's a great quote, by the way. <laughs> he, he was an appalling polar explorer, but he, he, had, good, he had good self-knowledge, at least. I, I guess he so. Knew That's that a the, good starting point. Yeah, yeah. He knew he'd had, po- he'd had adventures and knew that that was a sign of his incompetence.
0: Let's take a whistle-stop tour through Roald's own story. And Arctic exploration is right at its beating heart. Spoiler alert, he's not only first to the South Pole. Roald is also first to the North Pole and the first to navigate the Northwest Passage, the fabled sea route over the top of the American continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific. As a young boy growing up in and around Oslo in the 1880s, he was captivated by tales of 19th century British explorers, particularly those of John Franklin, who in the 1840s led a huge expedition to try and find the Northwest Passage. His state of the art ships, the Erebus and the Terror, were swallowed by the pack ice and never seen again. It's a story of bitter cold, boredom, scurvy, starvation, cannibalism, and death.
1: And yet, on reading of Franklin's earlier exploits, Rold later recalled
3: that they thrilled me as nothing I had ever read before.
1: I mean, Martin, it's, it's, a, strange, it's a strange old thing, this, isn't it? This urge for, for desolation and, and suffering. I mean, I, I'm reminded of what Buzz Aldrin said when he landed on the moon and he looked out of the window and he said, beautiful view, magnificent desolation. I mean what 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 is it that draws people to these extremes? I think it's hard
2: to pinpoint what exactly motivates our desire to um, experience this hardship and and you know explore these these harsh landscapes. but it certainly is a feature that emerges quite strongly during the period of the industrial revolution, so we can see it at least in part as a as a yearning for something other than this uh, overly technical and, and safe and secure and convenient world that was created uh, certainly in, in Western Europe and parts of the U.S. in um, the 1800s and beyond. And we see it not just in polar exploration and, and space, as you mentioned, but in, in mountaineering, in people who want to explore the air or explore the oceans. So there is this, this yearning, certainly. Well,
1: I'm, I'm very happy sitting in my nice warm house, so uh, that, that's where I'm going to stay. <laughs> I mean, Roald also had some homegrown heroes. Fritjof Nansen, who would later be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with refugees he was a legendary Norwegian polar explorer, and his trek across Greenland in 1888 inspired Rold to look for his own challenges. Given his 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 love and his fascination with John Franklin's story, it's it's not that surprising to find that Rold settles on the Northwest Passage as the route towards his own challenges.
2: I think it's that determination that sets him apart from many of his contemporaries. You have somebody who decides at a very, very early age, not only that he's fascinated by these explorers, but that he wants to become one. And he is singularly determined to shape himself into the best polar explorer. You also see this later in his life when he when he has become this, this famous explorer, at least in Norway, and he's quite popular in the US as well. He never quite feels comfortable when he's not out in the field. So in some ways, he's the opposite to a lot of these British explorers who endure their hardships, but seem to revel in being back in London and telling people about it.
0: Picking up on something you said earlier, Martin, Roald does this single-mindedly, and it's part of the contrast between him and the other explorers, that he knows what he needs to do to succeed. He becomes an accomplished skier, and that's not something Scott bothered with. And he got his sea qualifications as sea captain, not something that, that Shackleton did, either. It seems like he was going about things in in quite a different way, like methodical, very professional. It does seem to work, though.
2: Yeah, I I like to compare it to to sports. You know, if we think about football or basketball, there are these fundamentals that if you would like to be good at the sport, you start to train from very early age, dribbling the ball in football, uh, shooting layups Mm -hmm. in basketball, etc. And for any team to be successful, it doesn't matter how strategic they are, how athletic they might be. These fundamental skills underpin everything else. And in the polar landscapes, that is absolutely skiing and working with sled dogs. And as you already said, Amundsen absolutely prioritized this in the selection of his crew, in the training, in the equipment. And it's something that um, the British simply don't prioritize to the same extent and try to find technological fixes for their shortcomings in in being able to travel across this landscape, or they simply try to overcome it by working harder, by slogging harder, by enduring near starvation uh,
1: and frostbitten feet rather than um, working on this necessary skill. I mean, you you talk about starvation. One of one of the other things that that I found fascinating about how Roald deals with it is in terms of his his view of food. You know, he is not averse to a bit of raw penguin. That's right. And he, uh, one of his
2: first real polar experiences was on um, Adrien de Galas. Um He's a Belgian explorer. His expedition that launched in 1897 to explore the Antarctic Sea, and they overwinter in the Arctic. This, we believe now, was not actually planned. It, it uh, happened uh, by circumstance, and there is um, a lot of hardship that this crew has to endure, and, and Amundsen is one of these crew members. He was able to survive and even thrive because he was willing to eat whatever was available. Uh, which requires overcoming uh, certain cultural prejudices about eating <laughs> penguins and seals, which uh, oh. a lot of the British and also Belgians had had trouble with.
1: Yeah. I, and and I, I gather also that later on it was talking about eating dogs as well.
2: Uh, that's correct. On his successful uh, ski to the South Pole in uh, 1911, he, of course, brings several dogs with him that pull these large sleds, but they also slaughter some of them and eat them to feed the crew on their way there. And uh, mm. it's, you know, an, an an act of cruelty that I think is difficult to accept from our perspective today. And it was one that was also, uh, we can tell from Amundsen's writing, something he um, deliberated, but at the end of the day, he had learned from uh, his his many interactions with the Inuit, that uh, you had to see dogs as working animals and not as pets. So even though he was quite fond of many of his dogs, he wrote quite lovingly of them in much of his writing. This was simply a step he was willing to take to accomplish
1: this goal. You also mentioned there, Martin, you mentioned uh, the Inuits, the, the local indigenous people in the Arctic, when he is sort of racking up experience. Again, he seems to want to learn from them because they are the people who understand what life in those places are like. Here, Amundsen benefits a bit from not being British. You know, in this,
2: in this time, the British Empire reigned supreme. Most of its officers and captains, of course, see their culture as the, the one to be emulated by others. And so the idea that you can and should learn from sure. an indigenous population is something that few British uh, explorers embody. And Amundsen certainly does. He is he's a pragmatist. So it's not that he always looks to traditional technologies or, or foods. He takes a lot from the Inuit in terms of building igloos, in terms of working with dogs. But he's also one of the first to use uh, small marine petrol and diesel engines, a very risky and new technology at the time. But he sees the the benefit that it has over
1: steam, which is what uh, the British still favor. I'm fascinated about that, actually, in terms of one of the things that, that Roel does. I mean, you know me, Carla, uh, I'm, I'm always banging on about historical technology and the role it plays in changing societies but but Roald, Roald seems a, a bit of a magpie in this regard by 1903 after trekking through Scandinavian wastes racking up his experiences surveying the coastline of Antarctica as, as you said Martin by 1903 he's ready and he, he takes a, a relatively small fishing boat um, now Martin I'm just going to check with you whether you think that i'm pronouncing the name of the boat correctly joa that's pretty good (laughs) okay and he sets off with a crew of just seven people including himself And, and you know it's it's an old ship and it doesn't in any way benefit from the technological clout which the british would throw at Polar exploration from Franklin all the way through to Scott. Franklin had, you know, a heating system on on board his ships. Scott had snowmobiles; these newfangled inventions. But what role does, as 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 you say, Martin, is he fits it with a petrol engine, uh, rather than the steam engines which Scott and even Shackleton would rely on. And again, coming back to your sports analogy, Martin, yeah, that is a crucial marginal advantage. Yeah, okay, petrol's flammable and there's one or two slightly hair-raising fires they have down in the in the engine rooms, but it takes up less space than coal and so uh, you can have more space for food and supplies and fundamentally it means that the engine can be turned on very quickly. Shackleton, when his ships were encased in ice, he had to wait hours for his engines to build up a head of steam and and when you're trying to break free of the grip of that ice those hours can be the difference literally between life and death
0: when we're talking about the northwest passage to try and find a way through there he winters in the arctic twice by design rather than by accident Now, most expeditions realise and recognise that they would be stuck in the ice for one winter, maybe. But two, they would really try to avoid that. But he deliberately does this because he wants to make sure they're prepared, that they know what they're doing and what they're up against. And by late 1905, the Joa has made it. It's broken through the treacherous maze of islands, of waterways and dead ends into the Beaufort Sea which is just north of Alaska. And, I mean, they've done it, but it's not the end, of course. The ship is icebound again, and so Roald skis on his own 500 miles to a small village in Alaska to break the news. He knows they have a, a telegraph post there. And it would take until August 1906 for the Joa to break free and sail into an American port.
1: Hugh heroes, welcome... Uh metaphorical bunting parade at a place in the history books. Well,
0: yes, he does have a hero's welcome. And here's the thing. The hero's welcome he receives is in San Francisco because Americans really appreciate that sort of thing. But the British, with their empire, their explorers, from James Cook all the way through to Franklin, David Livingstone, Richard Burton, Scott Shackleton, you know, this was their bag and they really didn't like it. They didn't want anyone else trespassing on their territory. So America loved him. And Norway, of course, revered him. But the British, well, to be honest, they seemed to find Roald a bit common. And more than that, there was just no respect for his craft. He was just lucky. In fact, Lord Curzon, who headed up the Royal Geographic Society, said as much.
1: I mean, later, this is in the 1920s, Rold would even resign from the Royal Geographic Society over Curzon's remarks. And this is after he'd made it to the South Pole. Rold gets there with dogs. Scott has useless snowmobiles. They literally sink to the ocean floor. And he has ponies which are totally inappropriate for the terrain which they find themselves in. But Roald took along dogs and the dogs pulled the sleds and that, that really helped. And so at a, at a dinner, which is given in Roald's honour, Curzon raises a glass at that dinner and says, I therefore propose three cheers for the dogs. <laughs> it, you know, in, in his mind, it wasn't Roald who'd made it to the pole because of his superior planning. It was all down to the dogs. Roald was obviously livid, he calls the British very bad losers, and as he later wrote,
3: Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck.
2: <laughs> it's a marvellous quote by Amundsen, and I, I think it summarises not only his approach to his craft... But it also captures a bit of why we prefer the stories of, of Scott and Shackleton and the like, because the bad luck or this failure to plan properly inevitably results in a much more exciting story. The term action fallacy is one that I use in in the book to describe our mistaken belief that good leaders are characterized by an obsession with action and activity. They respond quickly and vociferously to whatever problem might crop up as they are undertaking their endeavor, whatever that might be, leading a company to a sports team, etc. Put differently, that if we're looking for a leader, it's the person who is the loudest, the person who is doing the most. And this kind of lines up with our preferred Hollywood-esque characters, these heroes who barge in are always leading from the front. What I find is that history's most successful leaders often remain a bit unseen because uh, they prefer deliberate, more subtle actions that align with the circumstances in which they find themselves. And because they do so, it makes them less exciting, it makes them less visible, and we're less likely to identify them or what they do as leaders. Incidentally, a lot of contemporary research in uh, organizational psychology confirms what I um, find through my historical analysis, which is that we, in fact, view people who speak more inherently as leaders, even if what they say is completely irrelevant to whatever problem is at hand. (laughs) It's called the Babel (laughs) hypothesis. We have uh, a tendency to rush in to solve problems before we fully understand them. So all these things are well documented in psychology as well. I just approach them through the historical lens that I'm more comfortable and familiar with.
0: One of the things that really strikes me about polar exploration is that pretense seems to be part and parcel of the story and when the facts don't fit the story they're conveniently changed Uh, there's the famous one about Shackleton's recruitment ad which has gone down in history as one of the greatest ads ever seen
1: Men wanted for hazardous journey small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger safe return doubtful honour and recognition in case of success I mean it's, it's it's a rousing advert it sounds absolutely wonderful problem of course is it simply didn't exist it was (laughs) never written and no one has ever found it despite extensive research no one has ever found it in any newspaper relating to anything about Shackleton oh gosh and then there's also the people who twist the facts to suit the story of their very own uh, of their very own hero's journey Martin I mean particularly again to the North Pole you would later have people like Robert Peary and then Richard Byrd making spurious claims that they'd reached the Pole based on falsified readings. These were claims, though, that were accepted for most of the last century. When Roald Amundsen died, he didn't know or he didn't think that he was the first person to get to the North Pole. He thought that it was Peary or or Richard Byrd. But, but there is one claim to the North Pole that barely lasted longer than the time it took to make it I mean one of the reasons that Roald turns to the South Pole in the first place is that he believed that someone else someone who he'd known already from the Belgica expedition the one where he was wintering in Antarctica that someone else had just nabbed the North Pole a man called Frederick Cook who said he'd got there in April 1908 I mean I mean Martin, I mean, all these three—Peary, Bird, Cook—they very much fit into your action-oriented leader mold, don't they? Yes, I think you're you're absolutely right,
2: and all three of them, as you say, make these claims that are questioned at the time and and found to be uh, completely uh, fabricated in the end. I think Bird is is the most interesting of these characters because. He clearly is a very, very adventurous person. He grows up in a, in a very well-established family in, in Virginia and the U.S., becomes a naval aid, aviator during the First World War. So he's at the forefront of this new quest to discover by air. And he has some successes in this. But unlike Amundsen and and even uh, Scott and Shackleton, he is willing to fabricate stories if necessary to advance his own career. And his his uh, 1926 faked flight to the North Pole is is classic. Here he takes off from Spitsburg and Incidentally, Roald Amundsen is there at the same time. They're kind of sharing this base. Amundsen right. flies shortly thereafter in an airship, the Noria, to the North Pole, and. Bird suffers all kinds of mishaps. He's not very well prepared. So, the skis that he's fabricated for his Fokker trimotor plane don't work properly. One snaps and nearly destroys the plane. Bird takes off, is gone for a little under 16 hours with his pilot, Floyd Bennett, and they come oh. back uh, much sooner than they would have had to to make it to the North Pole. So even at the time, Amundsen doesn't say anything, but I think many people doubted this claim because it's simply not possible to make it there and back. And what you see with Byrd and also with, with Cook is that these sort of spurious claims or exaggerations, let's say, characterize their entire careers. You know, Frederick Cook also claimed to be the first to have climbed Mount McKinley, Denali, and Alaska. Uh, that's completely disproven. He The summit photo that he provides was taken about 30 kilometres away from the actual summit. Really? Yeah, it's called Fake Peak today. (laughs) So, you know, he, he kind of builds his career on these fabrications.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Frederick Cook, because that takes us to the best bits of Roald's story, the poles. Now, in 1908, just a couple of years after returning from the Northwest Passage, Roald is planning his next move. And yes, it's to the North Pole. He's worked everything out, he's meticulous as always. He's got his team, a relatively small team of 19 men, and he's got nearly 100 sled dogs. He's got his ship, the Fram, this is one of the most easily pronounceable Scandinavian names on this episode. And then he gets news that Cook has reached the North Pole. So what does he do? I think the word today would be pivot, uh, but Roald simply heads south instead. He knew, of course, that Scott was already intent on the South Pole. And this is also part of the British disparaging of rold that he's somehow unsportsmanlike, that he should have given Scott a crack at it. I mean, does that stand up to scrutiny, Martin, or is that an unfair characterization?
2: No, this is certainly how Scott and the British establishment responded. But I think as an argument, it only holds if you agree with Scott's assessment that The South Pole was his to explore and to claim and others had to get in line and wait until he had had his uh, second shot at it.
0: We've not got to the dogs yet. We've mentioned them once or twice, but the dogs are key to this whole story as Roald knew only too well.
3: Scott had come south, equipped with motor sledges, which had immediately demonstrated their impracticability over the surface of ice and snow. He had brought also... And to this, he pinned his fate finally. A number of Shetland ponies. I was confident that this was a fatal mistake. And much to my sorrow, it was in part the cause of Scott's tragic end.
0: If you remember of Nansen, Roald's childhood hero, well, Scott had consulted him about transport and Nansen had urged him very strongly to focus almost exclusively on dogs. But he didn't. Martin, dogs, ponies, it doesn't sound like a a particularly important thing. After all, it's about humans getting to the pole. So why did these things matter? Well,
2: it's obvious in hindsight, right? But ensuring that you have the most efficient mobility possible over this terrain, they're covering, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of miles to get to their goal and back. That's really the key to success. And the motor sledges, they're untested. They're not reliable in the cold. And ponies are quite simply not up for this uh, challenge. And Scott should have known this, not only because he consulted numerous experts, let's say, but also because on previous expeditions, including Shackleton's Nimrod Expeditions, the ponies had failed to live up to the challenge. And the best combination is what Amundsen employed which is to use uh, sled dogs to pull sledges with equipment some men standing on the sleds and um, others ski
1: next to the sleds. Of course I mean uh, 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 oddly enough when Scott's Terra Nova arrives in the Arctic in early 1911 they come across Roald's Fram anchored in what was called the Bay of Wales that's the marine animal not the part of the United Kingdom. I mean, unsurprisingly, and I think this is a massive understatement, I quote, Curses loud and deep were heard everywhere, according to one of Scott's officers. They must have been livid. Still, they spent a bit of time together, allowing both teams to size up the competition, as it were. And, and the British seemed rather taken aback by Rolls' dogs, as one of the Norwegian team
3: later wrote. Englishmen were flabbergasted. They had never dreamt that dogs could run in that way before a sledge, and already they felt contempt for their dear ponies. Suddenly, they were gripped by wild excitement, cheered and waved their caps. Our drivers returned their greetings and cracked their whips. In contrast, Scott's snowmobiles
1: hardly got off the ship. One of them ended down on the ocean floor, and, and the ponies also sank deep in the snow until snowshoes were deployed.
0: It's strange that it's called Race to the Pole, because it's not until September 1911, and they've been there for most of a year already, that both teams head out southwards. Roald has one of his rare mishaps when the temperature drops to minus 56 degrees, so he has to return back to base and regroup. And as he says...
3: If we are to win this game, the pieces must be moved carefully. It was more important to arrive than to show great speed.
0: But after that, everything slots into place. He sets out again on the 20th of October with four other men and 52 dogs. They move slowly across the Ross ice shelf, onto land, up glaciers, over mountains, onto the continental plateau. And in the afternoon of the 14th of December, they finally reach their goal the South Pole. After a few days at the pole, they turned around and trekked back to the Fram, arriving on the 25th of January 1912, after 99 days, 2,100 miles. Of the 52 dogs which set out with them, sadly only 11 made it all the way. Scott reached the pole on the 17th of January, but never made it back to the Terra Nova. Edgar Evans collapses on the 17th of February, and Lawrence Oates famously walks out into a blizzard on the sixteenth of March. Scott and his remaining team members, Henry Bowers and Edward Wilson, die of cold, exhaustion, and starvation on the 29th ninth of March nineteen
1: twelve. It's 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 tragically sad, but but this is in some ways this is part of the problem for Roald. We find ourselves talking about Robert Falcon Scott, not Roald Amundsen. It's not Amundsen of the Antarctic, it's Scott of the Antarctic, and it's it's the tragedy of Scott's polar misadventure, which we all know about, not Rold's measured, calm, sensible expedition. I mean, Martin, this this does seem to chime with a lot of what you say in the Unseen Leader. It may seem a bit too glib to to ask this, but Are there lessons that we can learn and that we can apply to our own lives about the way that Roald dealt with the things that he was faced with?
2: What Roald does so well is that he's exceptionally meticulous in his planning. He is entirely pragmatic when it comes to making choices around equipment, around technologies and and people, whatever serves the purpose the best doesn't matter if it's an indigenous technology or something brand new. But also in the, in the field, he has a very democratic, a very humble way of leading his men, of soliciting their input, but at the end of the day, making the decisions uh, himself. And that seems to resonate very well with the people who accompany him on these trips. So I think these are lessons we can all apply that success lies neither just in planning nor in what you do, once you're underway on whatever endeavour it is you're, you're undertaken, again, this can be a business context or a sporting context or uh, Arctic exploration, I think you have to remain adaptable, remain aware of how circumstances are changing and make uh, adjustments accordingly. And he quite simply excelled in both of these areas, the the pre-expedition and during the expedition.
0: Remember that Roald had originally wanted to get to the North Pole. Well, he does that too. On the 12th of May 1926, after two failed attempts, he gets there, though this time by air, flying over the pole in the airship Norga. Remember too that Cook and later Peary and Bird claim to have got there first, and so Roald would never have conclusively known that in fact it was him. The first to navigate the Northwest Passage, the first to walk to the South Pole, the first to fly over the North Pole. And the reason he would never have known is that two years later, on the 18th of June 1928, in an attempt to rescue his friend Umberto Nobile, the designer and pilot of the Norga, who was stranded on an ice floe, Roald climbed aboard a Navy airplane to search the Barents Sea, and he was never seen again.
1: So, Martin, I mean, you know, I, I know this is a bit of an invidious question for you, but but you know, Roald is one of the four people you chose to highlight in your book, The Unseen Leader. I mean, is is it is it at all possible to sum up a life like that? In some ways, it's very easy to sum up a life
2: like Amundsen's because he was so singularly focused. He lived for exploration, and when he was not in the far north or far south, he was planning his next trip. Uh, so that that was his, his life. The other way to look at his life is that it takes place at a very interesting time in history. So when he undertook the successful navigation of the Northwest Passage aboard the Yoa, at the start of the century, uh, he didn't have any wireless technology with him. They were really on their own. And by the time he wraps up his career in the mid twenties, it's an entirely different world, uh, one in which the you know the the sheer strength and grit of of an individual human or a group of humans is less important than the technology. His skill set and his his contribution uh, is almost outdated. He's not able to pilot this airship by himself. He has to rely on Nobile, his Italian friend, to do so, um, because that's not something that he has spent much time with before. Maybe a final note on Amundsen as well. I don't think we need to suggest that he was infallible. He made um, many errors of judgment, but What we can say about him, in contrast to many of the other explorers that we've discussed today, is that he was very genuine and he had a lot of integrity. So we find in none of his writing any of this exaggeration or or the false claims that we see in the writing of so many others. He really let his Mm -hmm. actions speak for themselves. And the problem, of course, is that his actions were, at the end of the day, not quite as exciting as the... um, near disasters
1: that so many others got themselves into so if you want excitement read scott and read shackleton if you want success read amundsen that's right martin it has been an absolute delight and a fascination to talk to you today thank you so much oswin and thank you carla you have been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been MK Lee and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Stjan Pedersen and Tim Redman. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating, it really helps. And head over to TrappedHistory.com for the Hall of Fame, bonus episodes and more. Thanks for listening and see you soon.